Welcome to Encouraging Truths for Today. We're glad to bring you this message from First Baptist Church in Crockett, Texas. Now please join us as we learn to grow deeper in our relationship with God and each other. Only Jesus was perfectly sinless. Only Jesus was satisfactory to fulfill the law and the requirements of the ultimate substitution of sacrifice in our lives. And if anyone came to understand that, it would have been Mary who, in very deep humility, being the one and only one to give birth in such a supernatural way through a virgin birth, hearing the angels and the shepherds and Simeon and other people plus Jesus, she would have come the closest to clearly understanding her desperate need for him. And so today I want us to focus on what Mary didn't know. We learn from her experience uh, some crucial things that we need to know about Jesus. And she grew in that knowledge as a sinner in need of God's grace and his mercy. And we've been focusing on the coming of Christ. We'll continue to do that today. But I just want us to recognize that, that Mary and Joseph didn't walk around with a halo on their heads. And, and I'm so glad we have a realistic scene over here where that's not the case. Uh, there was nothing that distinguished them or even the outer outward appearance of the baby. It was just a simple couple, perhaps a young man in his 20s, a young lady in her mid to late teens perhaps, experiencing a supernatural interruption in their lives. And in the text we're going to read, we'll hear Mary ask a question that seems to possibly ring in her ears and echo in her heart throughout her experience with Jesus, and that would be, how can this be? It was something beyond her human ability to wrap her head around the fact that she would be used by God as the chosen mother to give birth to the baby. She would uh, nurture him and the things of the Lord alongside his earthly uh, guardian, Joseph. And as a married couple, they would watch him grow and develop. And it appears that on many occasions she was asking that same question, how can this be? So let's open our Bibles to Luke chapter 1. And today we're going to look at several passages and we're going to look at seven things that Mary didn't know as she got glimpses of his glory. So let's look at Luke chapter 1. We're going to begin reading in verse 26. Now in the sixth month, referring to the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed or engaged to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary. And having come in, the angel said to her, Rejoice, 
highly favored one, the Lord is with you. Blessed are you among women. But when she saw him, she was troubled at his saying and considered what manner of greeting this was. Then the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son and shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the son of the highest. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom there will be no end. Then Mary said to the angel, How can this be, since I do not know a man? And the angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and, you, and the power of the highest will overshadow you. Therefore also that Holy One who is to be born will be called the Son of God. Now Elizabeth, your relative, has also conceived a son in her old age, and this is now the sixth month for her who was called barren. For with God, nothing will be impossible. Then Mary said, Behold the maidservant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Let's pray. Father, as we look at this passage and other passages this morning, I thank you for the encouragement we receive from your word in these scenes of Scripture. Vivid pictures of how you use ordinary people plagued with sin and suffering and in the strife of life but yet you bring about your perfect plan and your perfect will. And how grateful we are for the gift of your son. So today it's our prayer that he would be exalted, that you would draw us to him, and that you would magnify him in our minds and in our hearts once again. And so, Father, please speak through me, because unless you speak, I have nothing at all to say. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Just think about that question Mary asked. How can this be? She was completely caught off guard, surprised and shocked, not just at the presence of the angel, but at the message that he delivers. The first thing we recognize that Mary didn't know is that Mary could not conceive of her conception. She could not conceive how she would be the one who would conceive a child and give birth in a virgin's life of the Savior. It was a complete shock to her. It was something she could not talk to her mother about or her friends about. This was something nobody else had ever experienced, would ever experience. It was a one-time supernatural birth of the Savior of all mankind. And so she has this puzzling question in her mind, how can this be? And then the angel reassures her, it's not about what you do, it's about what God is going to do 
in you and through you the rest of your life, you will be the one known as the the one who gave birth to the one and only Messiah and the Savior of the world, but it will all be as a result of God's power and activity in your life. And she could not conceive of that. Can you imagine anyone daring to say when questioned about their pregnancy, I don't know how it happened. I'm just expecting a baby. She couldn't explain it. She couldn't describe it. All she knew is the angel had promised that and it was going to happen. And all she could say at the end of that passage was, let it happen as you have said, as a messenger of God. Just want to remind you how odd this miraculous birth was. Number one, she needed no pregnancy test. She didn't have a sonogram. She knew it was going to be a boy. She knew that without any gender reveal. She knew the name of the child, not only the name, but a vision of where his life would take him. Now, if you're a parent of an adult child, I would venture to say if I ask you, are are your children doing what you thought they'd be doing when they became adults? Did you look at your child and say, this is the vocation that I think they'll pick up and go with? Or I know they're going to live here or there. I don't think any of us could have fathomed how God would shape our children, but here she has a glimpse of all of that. What an amazing picture. And sometimes we read past that, but when we we look at, at our current circumstances and what all we have to go through to get all the information she was given right in that moment by that angel, that's pretty amazing, isn't it? And in spite of all of that knowledge that was unloaded to her, she still was asking the question, how can this be? She could not conceive of her conception. But then secondly, as we move through the the story here, beginning in verse 1 of chapter 2, we find that she could not imagine the unimaginable. She could not imagine the unimaginable. It says in verse 1 of chapter 2, and it came to pass in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This census first took place while Quirinius was governing Syria. So all went to be registered, everyone to his own city. And Joseph also went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth into Judea to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David to be registered with Mary, his betrothed wife, who was with child. Now, this is unimaginable. Caesar, the most powerful person on the globe, declares that everyone is going to their hometown to be registered and to be taxed. And everyone must do that. 
And so this young man who is engaged and living in that one year of being betrothed and chaperoned is going to have to go to his hometown in Bethlehem to register and to be taxed. Now, who's calling the shots here? It's not Caesar, it's God. Just think about that. God, through the prophets in the Old Testament, prophesied hundreds of years before about this Nazarene that would be born in Bethlehem. How's that going to happen? He's going to use the most powerful, ungodly, self-absorbed and self-exalting person on the globe to fulfill his plan in the birth of his son. That tells us that God is sovereignly in rule over all of creation, over every human heart. He can move us and do what he wants to do in our lives and accomplish his will with or without our cooperation. But here, Caesar has them all go to be taxed. It's an unimaginable occurrence. But then notice what happens when they get there. So it was while they were there, in verse 6, the days were completed for her to be delivered, and she brought forth her firstborn son, wrapped him in swaddling cloths, and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the end. By the way, did you know that currently when a new baby is born, uh, there's been this new discovery that it's good to swaddle them, keep them wrapped up, and uh, it's kind of amazing that we're back to what God already had designed and they were already practicing. Well, then we hear about these shepherds out in the same country, living out in the fields, watching over their sheep, by night, and an angel appears to them, delivers the message that he has good news for them. The Messiah has been born in the city of David, and he is Christ the Lord. He is the Messiah. He tells them that there'll be a sign to them that they will find the baby wrapped in swaddling cloths, lying in a manger. Now, think about how that would shock these shepherds. This baby that is supposed to be the Messiah sent by God is going to be a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths. That's not the shock. He's going to be in a barn, in a stone trough, a manger. Not in Jerusalem, not in Caesar's household, but a simple birth in an unlikely place, and it's all just unimaginable. Then the angels fill the sky. They begin to worship and give glory to God in the highest. The angels leave. The shepherds discuss this together. Then they say, let us now go and see this thing which the Lord has made known to us. So they hurry into the city And it says in verse 17, Now when they had seen him, they made widely known the saying which was told them concerning this child. And all those who heard it marveled at those things which were told them by the shepherds. But Mary kept or pondered all these things in her heart. 
Uh, To ponder means to kind of mentally digest something, to kind of work it out. Let me think this over and over and over. Uh, The word keeping means to preserve in your memory, to keep it in mind lest it be forgotten. It's like when this was going on, it was so unimaginable. She's heard a message from an angel about the birth of the child. Now these filthy social outcast shepherds are delivering a similar message to her, and it's just unimaginable. She can't wrap her mind around it. She's pondering all these things in her head and in her heart, and she's keeping them safely and guarding them, trying to put the puzzle together. It's quite an amazing picture for a young lady to go through all of that, trying to conceive of that supernatural conception, trying to imagine the unimaginable and all the while it's happening all in her, around her, and through her. So then it comes time for the baby to be circumcised about... Eight days later, they bring the baby to the temple, and when they walk into the temple, they're greeted by a man named Simeon. Now, again, realize that uh, this was not a baby with a halo. There was nothing marking this baby. He didn't have embroidered on his baby blanket Messiah or a big M on his swaddling cloth. It's just a young, ordinary couple, a carpenter, a young maiden, they're bringing a baby in to be uh, circumcised and to uh, bring forth the name and all of that is a great occasion for them. But in that temple area and in those that temple court when they entered, th- there could have been multitudes of parents and babies there. But it tells us that Simeon was in the spirit on the Lord's day. And when he saw him, he recognized him. So he comes and he, he takes the baby in his arms and he prophesies over that baby. It says in verse 28 of Luke chapter 2, he said to him, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant, referring to himself, depart in peace according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation which you have prepared before the face of all peoples, a light to bring revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people, Israel. Now, if Mary was out of the ordinary and if she had some supernatural aura about her, wouldn't you think that when Simeon said, that's a beautiful baby, she would have been the one prophesying? She would have been the one uh, explaining everything to him, but she didn't know. She didn't completely know because she could not understand the incomprehensible. Notice what it says in verse 30. And Joseph and Jesus' mother marveled at those things which were spoken of him. They marveled. They were amazed. They had this wonder and a astonishment about it that I, I have to try to 
wrap my head around that in a sense is what they're feeling. It's, it's incomprehensible. And then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, it says in verse 34, Behold, this child is destined for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign which was spoken against. Yes, a sword will pierce through your own soul also that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. He says, basically, this highest joy that you have ever experienced is going to take you down a path that will take you to the deepest depths of pain that you could not ever imagine. A sword will pierce your heart. If you're a parent, you know that experience, don't you? Not to the depths that Mary would experience it, but it says that in the midst of all of this message from Simeon, It was just unimaginable to her. She couldn't understand that incomprehensible reality of where all of this would take her son. Now, I've been a new parent before. I'm basically a new grandparent now. I loved hearing good things about my kids, as a baby especially. One thing people would say about our children when they were young and had all that, that baby fat, they would, they would reach down and take their cheek. They've got such chubby cheeks. And then next thing they say is they look just like you. And I would think, okay, well, just call me chubby cheeks then. But I didn't want to hear, you know, that's one of the top 10 babies I've ever seen. Or, you know, next to, well, you know, next to, well, I can't really give it a number, but that's, that's a pretty cool kid you got there. But we drink in that when people say, I, I love those eyes or, or the way they smile. I, I, it just takes my breath away to see the joy of a baby like that. Can you imagine eight days into his life being told, yes, he will be the one that establishes things. He'll cause some to rise, some to fall, and a sword will pierce your heart also. And in light of all of that, She could not understand the incomprehensible. Then you look down toward the end of chapter 2 and you find another amazing scene. It tells us in verse 40, And the child grew and became strong in spirit, filled with the wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. And his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up to Jerusalem according to the custom of the feast. When they had finished the days and they returned, the, the boy lingered behind in Jerusalem and Joseph and his mother did not know it. 
Now, can you imagine that? Going to church and forgetting to bring your child home with you? I remember uh, talking to Jaron one time when he got to be about 11 or 12. He was getting really sociable. That's our older son, and he was talking to people. And, and literally, Deanne and I were sitting around waiting for him to quit visiting with people. So finally, I said, son, you know, he was 12. I said, you were 12 years old. You know how to get to our house. And so uh, we're going to just go on home next time. If you want to visit, you can visit and then just head home for lunch. We'll just leave you here because that's what Jesus' parents did. And, and he, uh, well, I didn't say that. And he said, but, but I'm doing like Jesus. I'm here talking with the older people. And I said, yeah, and his parents left him there too. So that was the agreement. We're just going to leave you at church. But can you imagine, you are the parents of the Son of God. You're traveling in a large group. That's the way they would travel. And they would travel like in caravans because of the safety of numbers because of robbers and thieves and caring for one another and all of that. And they assumed, perhaps, that he was here or there, but he was not anywhere in the group. And they, they travel a day's journey, and they realize Jesus is not with them. What an amazing picture that is. So when they didn't find him, they returned to Jerusalem, seek him, it says in verse 45. So it was after three days. Now get this, they've traveled a day away. They couldn't text or call and ask, is Jesus by the chance still there? They, they travel another day's journey back to Jerusalem. And then the next day, they find him in the temple talking to the leaders and the spiritual elite there in the temple courts. And all who heard him, it says in verse 47, were astonished at his understanding and answers. So when they saw him, they were amazed. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you done this to us? Look, your father and I have sought you anxiously. She was petrified at losing the child born supernaturally into her care. And so basically, she scolds him as a 12-year-old. Why have you done this to us? Your father and I have been anxiously looking for you. Have, have you not said that in a, a store or a mall or somewhere when your child wanders off and you turn frantically looking for them? And then notice how Jesus replies. Why is it that you sought me? Did you not know that I must be about my father's business? Do you hear the, the wisdom that comes out of his 12-year-old lips? She had said, your father and I we're anxious and searching for you. He says, did you not know I had to be about my father's business? I, I have to be here. Not only would he discuss the law, he would fulfill the law. Not only would he amplify the message of the prophets, he would embody the message of the prophets. 
Do you see how that must have shaken her life? She's anxious and frantic. She's viewing him as a mere 12-year-old child. She's not in a co-partnership with him, moving toward the salvation of the world. She's simply raising him and nurturing him in the things of God. And he's saying to her, you have missed the whole point. I'm right here doing what my father sent me to do. Do you see the anxiety that she experienced? Mary anxiously witnessed the magnitude of his mission, which would be much beyond her. And it wouldn't be their mission, it was his mission. And his mission would involve saving her, not her saving him. Isn't that an amazing picture that we find here in Scripture? He uses the word must there. I must be about my father's business. In chapter 9, verse 22, he says, I must preach. In uh, John chapter 3, verse 14, he says, I must suffer. And he must be lifted up. It says in John 3.14, he must be lifted up. He must preach. I've given the wrong references. 4.43, he must preach. 9.22, he must suffer. And John 3.14, he must be lifted up. It's, it's that thing that is most necessary. It, it has to happen. It's non-negotiable. I, I must be about my father's business. I must preach. I must do this. This is my mission for which I was sent. And how staggering that must have been to his mother. Still very young, grappling with this idea of the magnitude of his mission. Then turn with me to John chapter 2. We look at the fifth thing Mary didn't know. John chapter 2. Jesus is invited to a wedding in Cana of Galilee, so he's traveling there. He brings with him his mother and some of his followers, which increases the guest list. Uh, They arrive there, and there in that culture, a Wedding celebration would last for days and days and days and days. And they ran out of wine. It was a celebration. They they brought out all the wine that they needed and they would serve it and it was a sign of uh, affluence for them to have plenty of wine and, and you just never want to run out. It's kind of like this weekend when uh, our youngest son and his bride and his baby were here. We, we just have made sure we didn't run out of food, and we probably won't for a month now. We, we, we are concerned about that. And so they, they want to have all the wine and have everything in place. Well, the unexpected happens. They run out of wine, and, and Mary hears of that. She comes to Jesus and says in verse 3 of John chapter 2, they have no wine. 
Jesus says to her, Woman, what does that, what does your concern have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Now, at this point, she can't imagine his supernatural significance. She's thinking, it's time to do something. He's saying, my hour has not yet come. Now, some point here would be she didn't know what time it was. She wasn't living on the same calendar that Jesus was. Uh, she didn't have all the answers, and she didn't have all the dates said. And, and as, as my experience is, many of your experience is, guys, as your wife is the keeper of the calendar, but, but in a sense here, she was not the keeper of his calendar because she didn't know when this hour would come. That's a recurring phrase in the gospel according to John. He keeps pointing, this is not my hour. My hour has not yet come. And then finally it says the hour had come. It's a great thing to track out in the gospel according to John. But at this point, Mary doesn't know what time it is. Remember, she's just his earthly mother. She's not divine. She's, she's not shaping him toward that. She's a witness to that. He's moving in that direction. He's simply at a wedding celebration. She brings that concern to him. He uses that woman as a respectful term. What does your concern have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. I didn't come just to turn water into wine. I turned it. I came to turn dead people into live people. I came to bring lost people to be saved. I came to give people who live in darkness light. That was what his hour was all about, not just displaying his power, but conveying a message of love and forgiveness from the cross upon which he would die. She didn't know what time it was. Therefore, she couldn't completely envision his supernatural significance, but she gives some very good advice. His mother turns and says to the servants, it says in verse 5, whatever he says to you, do it. I think that's enough for us to live a godly life, isn't it? Whatever he says to you, do it. When you read it, live it. That's what she was saying. Whatever he says, whatever he commands, you do it. You follow this. Now remember, she's just a guest at the wedding. She's not exercising her authority. She's pointing to his authority and she's saying, I can't help you, but I know who can. Whatever he says to you, do it. So there's six pot, water pots of stone, large water pots. He tells them to fill them with water. They fill them up. He said to them, draw some out now and take it to the master of the feast. And they took it. When the master of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine and didn't know where it came from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom. And he said to him, every man at the beginning sets out the good wine. And when the guests have gotten, uh, have well drunk, not gotten drunk, but well drunk, then that which is inferior they bring out, but you have kept the good wine until now. 
And then John says, this is the beginning of the signs Jesus did, manifesting his glory, and his disciples began to believe in him. What a picture that is. A sign points to significance. A sign points to that supernatural reality of who Jesus is. But here in this scene, Mary could not envision his supernatural significance. All she knew to do was point people to Jesus, and that's exactly what all of us have been called to do. There was only one Messiah, one Savior. There was no co chairman in that reality it was Christ and Christ alone coming to him by faith and faith alone and all she could do was point to Christ because she could not fully envision the supernatural significance that this sign would point to later in his earthly life Mary just pointed people to Jesus well then we move to another reference in John chapter 19 to find the sixth thing that Mary didn't know. It moves rapidly. When you're looking at references to Mary, his earthly mother, they are pretty sparse. As you move from chapter 2 to chapter 19, you find the sixth thing Mary didn't know. Mary didn't realize that the death that he died would give her life. She didn't realize his death would give her life. It's an unimaginable scene. Jesus is now on a cross. We have moved rapidly through his life. He's, he's lived 33, about 33 years of perfect sinlessness. He's offered people love and forgiveness from God if they repent and turn from their sin to embrace him as the Messiah. He has been misrepresented, mistried, sentenced to die. He's dying on the cross, and there are seven sayings that he gives from the cross. The first being, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they do. It moves up to that third saying from the cross, and it has to do with Mary. It says in verse 26 of John 19, when Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing by, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, that disciple took her to his own house. Let's think about this scene. The young maiden, maiden of the manger scene is now the grieving mother at the cross. She has seen the display of, of miracles. She's seen him growing in the wisdom and understanding of the things of the kingdom of God. She's seen him embrace his mission. She's misunderstood him at one point and she and his brothers came to, to get him and, and she has struggled all through this and then you come to the cross and it's obviously that she doesn't fully realize that his death is going to give her life and, and she is helpless and hopeless in that moment and Jesus Wearing, bearing the weight of the sin of the world upon himself, 
gives a thought to his mother. A mother who cannot intervene, a mother who cannot assist him, a mother who cannot bear part of the load. She is watching him suffering. She is grieving as any mother could. That sword that was prophesied by Simeon is piercing her heart. She's in the depths of grief. And his closest friend, John, the beloved disciple, is there at the cross. He looks down and he says, Mother, behold your son and behold your mother. He carefully did not draw full attention to her as his mother. He didn't cry to her for help, but instead he extended help by giving her someone to take care of her. And in the depths of that grief, she didn't realize that his death would give her life. Then there's the seventh thing Mary didn't know. In Acts chapter 1, verse 14, the final mention of Mary. The story of Jesus comes through the prophecies, through the law, all the way through the Old Testament. It flows into the New Testament and points back to his coming. And, and Mary is briefly mentioned here and there. Now is the final reference to her at the very outset of the history that follows the resurrection and ascension of Jesus. She was simply a minor character with a major role that didn't know everything. Notice what it says in verse 14 of Acts chapter 1. These all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. A group of followers of Christ have gathered in an upper room, those apostles that were closest to him. And there's Jesus' mother and his brothers. She's not the spokesman for the group. She's not offering comfort and affirmation to them. She is simply there waiting and wondering along with them what this promise will look like. And she couldn't anticipate the power and the purpose of his promise. The very Holy Spirit that had enabled her to give birth to Christ would give birth to the church here in the book of Acts, but she could not anticipate that. She could not foretell that. She could not expect that in the way that it would happen. She was a simple human being that was participating along other simple people, ordinary people that were followers of Christ, and she's waiting and watching and wondering how the power and purpose of his promise will play out. And we know that on the day of Pentecost, the power of the Holy Spirit came, the church is born, people are converted, and the church begins to take the message, not of Mary, but the message of Jesus to the world. And although she gloried in that, although she must have celebrated that, she's never spoken of again. She couldn't anticipate the power and purpose of his promise and what the Holy Spirit would do in magnifying 
the son that she had given birth to and whom she continued to magnify as the savior of the world. And it would be him, the church through centuries, would look to the sky awaiting his return. And that's the beauty of this whole picture. We're not awaiting the return of of Mary. We're awaiting the return of Christ. She she has no significance beyond Acts because the church begins to magnify the one that came and, and begins to celebrate him and begins to call people to faith in him and they point to his soon return. I'll never forget one semester when we lived in New Mexico. I had driven to the community of Hobbs, New Mexico, I was lecturing that day, and one of the students asked me, have you seen the sap on the tree? I thought, I've seen a lot of sap on trees. Uh, Even though I lived in New Mexico where they're pretty sparse, I'd seen sap on trees. I said, I'm assuming you mean a certain tree. And they said, yes, Mary has appeared on a tree through the sap. And I said, really? I hadn't heard of that. And they said, yeah, you can go down there and and, um, people are lined up to see this. People are traveling to come see this image of Mary on the tree. I happened to have Jaron with me that day. He didn't have class on Fridays and so I took him with me. I thought, well, this is a good teachable moment. So we drove down there and we had to park down the street. Uh, We got in line and walked up there and and to me it was like those uh, images that if you stared at these things it would kind of pop out. It never popped out for me. I just and I I was really wondering what, what are they seeing? People were getting really emotional and really excited. They were putting money here. They were lighting candles. They're doing all this stuff around this tree. And Jaron said, Dad, I don't, I don't get it. And I said, I don't either. We went back to the car. And it occurred to me. I am so glad my eternal significance doesn't hinge upon an image of Mary on that tree, but the very Son of God, the image of God on another tree outside of Jerusalem. That's where my hope is. My hope doesn't rest in the appearance of Mary in the clouds. I'm not looking for that, but what I am looking for is that day when those clouds part and the Son of God returns and I'm anticipating the coming of Christ. I'm not looking for these visions and experiences apart from that. I've come to know the Christ of Scripture. Everybody else pales in significance to Him. I'm waiting His return because it was He that redeemed me from my sin. It was Him that gave me life when I was dead in my sins and in my 
trespasses against God. It was him that moved me out of darkness into life. It was him that gave a a life that overflows full of joy and peace and love. It is all about Jesus. And so how dare we point to anyone lesser than him? We should point always to Jesus and keep our eyes on the skies because he is coming again. Just as he came the first time, it is more certain than ever he will return. So as Mary told the people at the wedding, whatever he says to you, do it. Well, if you don't know him today, I know what he's saying to you. Come to me. We find that repeatedly in Scripture. We find that as the last invitation of the Bible. He's saying, come. And if you haven't come to Jesus for life and for forgiveness, and if you haven't come to understand that he fulfilled the law which you have broken and which is breaking you and you are living in that torment under the wrath of God. He wants to set you free from all of that. He has paid the price on the cross. You you can go directly to him. You don't have to go through a preacher. You don't have to go through his mother. You don't have to go through anyone else. It's, it's you going to the Father through Christ. And the very things that Mary didn't know, we know because of the Scripture. So you have enough knowledge to Come to him. Come to me is what he would say to you today and what he is saying to you by the presence of the Holy Spirit today. Have you come to him for forgiveness, for the release from the bondage of the penalty of sin? Have you come to him We would like to thank you for joining us for this message from First Baptist Church in Crockett, Texas. First Baptist desires to be a house of prayer with a heart for people, making a difference by making disciples from our neighborhood to the nations. If you would like more information about this ministry, please visit www.firstcrockett.org. Until next time, may God's blessings be upon you.